Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. I'm sitting here at the beautiful historic Bazell Memorial Library, built in 1904, on the University of Oklahoma campus. Today is a good day, y'all. You're going to love what our guest is bringing to the table in this episode of Native Chalk Talk, Comanche Snakes and Sooners. But first, a word from our sponsor. The Choctaw Nation has always provided a foundation upon which a future can be built. From our home in Southeast Oklahoma to a bingo hall that grew to be one of the largest casinos in the world. Today's summer school programs lay the groundwork for a love of learning. Small business programs support local economies. And with over 10,000 jobs created, Choctaw offers financial stability to tribal members and our neighbors. Together, we build success. Because together, we're more. We'll cover the history of the natives on this very land where OU sits, a behind-the-scenes look at the AMC show The Sun, info on the best rattlesnake festival in the country, a heck of a Comanche woman, Masetki, a new Native American museum you've got to see, and stay tuned as we'll be hearing a beautiful hymn sung in the Comanche language. Y'all, please welcome my friend Rance Wariakwe from the Comanche tribe. Rance, it's great to see you, and thanks for meeting me on the University of Oklahoma campus. Oh yes, definitely. Thank you for inviting me here. Absolutely. So there's so much cool stuff to uncover here today. Pardon me for a moment as I have a chat with my listeners about your background, Rance. So Rance Wariakwe's background entails the following. Originally from Apache, Oklahoma, and now living in Oklahoma City, Rance Wariakwe is a Comanche Nation tribal member and Pawnee and Choctaw through his mother. He attended Haskell Indian Nations University and received his bachelor's and master's degrees in Native American studies from the University of Oklahoma. He also taught Introduction to Native American Studies for OU as a graduate assistant, and most recently, 1213 Rhetorical Writing for the Department of English. His thesis research focused on recovering indigenous aspects of OU through place-based study, examining the native history of the land, as well as the effects of race relations on Indians' higher education experiences at OU. Mr. Wariakwe recently acted as a media production assistant for the soon-to-be-opened First Americans Museum in downtown Oklahoma City. To my Oki friends, did you know that was coming? I'm so excited. And at this museum, he worked on numerous media projects and exhibits, coordinating and directing short films and developing media interactive maps, databases, timelines, educational programs, and tools. He stays actively involved in ceremonial, social, cultural, and political matters that affect Comanche tribal members and tribal members from other communities throughout Oklahoma and Indian Country. Rance also acted on the AMC television series The Sun and is a co-owner of Indian Image, that's NDN Image, a media consulting and production enterprise that aims to increase historically and culturally appropriate representations of American Indians in film and other media. Mr. Wariakwe is a member of the Tabe Ika Native American Church chapter and attends First American United Methodist Church with his family in Norman, Oklahoma. You stay very busy, my friends. Indeed, indeed, true. And uh, <laughs> I just wanted to go ahead and uh, introduce myself, greet everyone in uh, Comanche, Choctaw, and Pawnee. Oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> please my do. Heritage is Madoeko, Halito, and then Nawa is Pawnee for hello. Great, thank you. As mentioned, University of Oklahoma is familiar stomping grounds for you. Yeah, yeah. As I mentioned, uh, I studied indigenous aspects of OU through a place-based study here. Interestingly enough, Indians were allowed to study here at OU uh, right at the beginning. And what took me to this study was after uh, a situation on campus uh, involving uh, some racial issues, I looked to see who was the first African-American student on campus. And this led me to look who was the first Native American student mm -hmm. on campus. And that, there was no listing for that. There was no listing for wow. a Native American student on campus. 
And so that led me to start looking about how long Native Americans had been going to school here at OU, and it's virtually since the beginning. Hmm. But like I said, you know, that's virtually since the beginning, but African-Americans weren't, of course, weren't allowed until like the 48, I think 48, 49 was the court hmm. cases that had yeah. involved uh, Ada Spuel. Again, the, these were some of the first African-Americans that were allowed on campus to come to school at OU. And so mm -hmm. I started looking at why, what was the dynamics going on there with race relations at the beginning of the, the university? Yeah. And from that, it, uh, it took me to... You know, wondering, you know, when was the first student there at OU? When, when, how did, how much were natives involved? Uh, at the same time, you're looking at how, why they were, they were excluded, they were excluded as well in society in certain facets as well. Here in Oklahoma, many of the uh, schools in the state were set up by tribes that were originally here first in the territory. So the first schools were started by tribal nations. Mm -hmm. uh, Non-natives that were in the territories at the time actually went to those schools. And so uh, we had Indian schools that had non-natives going to the schools. Mm. There was kind of a, always a, a mixture of those, at least those two uh, whites and natives going to school together since the Indian territory. Wow. And so, you know, when we talk about going to school at OU, of course, we're talking about how accessible that is. And, and you can see early on, it's, it's really a lot of mixed bloods. Mm -hmm. That's what took me to thinking about this. How it is that natives can be allowed into college in a setting with you know, excluding uh, certain other individuals. You know, I took that study and just looked at it from a native perspective. There was a lot of um, natives that were mixed of heritage that were involved in the, the making of the school, as well as the, the football team. It was pretty important back then, but it was becoming important uh, as far as the school, university, and native populations going to the university. Uh, there was a lot of welcome of native football players. The university accommodated native students that could play football. So footballers later on were able to be welcomed in as well. One in particular was named Key Wolf. He was a Chickasaw. And that was in like 1903 when he was finally uh, on the football team. And I looked at the story of those individuals, Joseph Matthews, who was an Osage writer who wrote about his experiences there at the university in a kind of a, in a biographical sense, but it was, a, he wrote a novel, but it was, it was semi-biographical. Yeah. And so, you know, it was, it gave an eye into how an Indian could be on campus and be accepted into fraternities and other facets of college life. Those experiences that he was writing about really led me to start pondering about the experiences that Native students had on campus in, in the past uh, since the school had been started and up to today. When we had this incident on campus, it, it didn't involve Natives, but it involved uh, some African-American students on campus. I wrote an op-ed for Native News Network that eventually expanded on a lot of the information that I talked about in my thesis, which is uh, looking at the title of it was Settler Savages and Slaves, and it kind of looks at the, the dynamics of racial dynamics. It talks about football, how you're accepted in football. Maybe because you're accepted in football, you're, you're accepted in college society a little bit better, too. Now, you've also talked about the space of OU and the Indian land on which it was built. Yeah, yeah. So that's when, in my research, I, I came across uh, some nice little tidbits of information, but one of them in particular was basically the campus is set on some old Comanche hunting grounds. Yeah, sure. these were these were Native American hunting grounds. These were Comanche hunting grounds. Uh, this area was mainly uh, wetland, but there were areas where buffaloes came and uh, we came, as as the Comanches, we came up there and uh, hunted those, used as hunting, hunting grounds. So we kind of, when I was writing this thesis, I kind of looked at this as the getting place. A yeah. place that where at one point in time we came to get resources for survival. And nowadays, as Native American students and Native American faculty, we're coming to, again, have access to resources, access to, you know, education and information that maybe we can take back to our communities and use for, uh, you know, assist our nations. I love that. It was the getting place for hunting for buffalo. And now it's the getting place for education. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, you know, so when in my research, you know, I looked at, you know, areas about football was, you know, I'm a sports fanatic and a real big OU football fan. So uh, football was a kind of my avenue, my vehicle into looking through these issues and these situations on campus at OU. When I did some of my research, I came across where the, the first actual football field was currently where the Fred Jones Museum stands. 
That's on the corner of Boyd and Asp, I think. Mm -hmm. Fred Jones Museum sits on a place where it was once the first football field. And the research I came across talked about how the football field was filled with buffalo wallows. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they had to fill those buffalo walls in order to make it a flat plane. That's fascinating. Yeah, so I mean, those are some aspects about, you know, OU I was researching. I also touched a little bit on the Sooners, the Sooner mm -hmm. mascot, and how that's uh, basically just representative of homesteaders taking over the land that had been allotted to Indians. Boomer Sooner is a terminology that goes around is kind of synonymous with the school. And when I was writing this thesis, I was talking a little bit about how at one point in time, there was a, some native representation. Little Red was a mascot that was used and uh, at one point in time became looked at as kind of disparaging because it was people thought that he was just like a clown on the sidelines. But he was actually a tribal member. So he was, there were tribal members, there were fancy dancers that were acting as the huh. Little Red mascot. And so I look at that and how at the point in time that the ad mascot was removed in the late 70s, it was the first instance of a mascot being removed from a university or a school. Wow. Uh, later right. on, Stanford had changed their mascot. They were, uh, I can't recall what their, their Redskins, if they were Indians. Mm -hmm. But uh, Stanford changed their, their, their mascot eventually after that, too. But what I talk about is since that was been removed, all we're left with is the settler story, the settler narrative. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about the little red or how that played into how the fact that it might have represented some native aspect right build wow i you know obviously i grew up in oklahoma and i never heard that story of the little red that's interesting i just took it as a you know it was a critique on on what was going on in the field with the every time a touchdown was scored by university of oklahoma they would have the sooner schooner come out and do a, a little turn on the field and go back into the stadium every time there's a touchdown there's a basically a little representation of landmine. You know, we don't think about that too much. Gotten kind of glossed over. You know, these are important things, the subtle things that we don't think about a lot that do kind of have an effect on us more than we think. Like I said, you know, that we have the representation of, of the land run, but then we don't have any kind of native representation of Oklahoma. And so that, for me, I kind of went back and forth on the mascot issue and why this or that. And it was just, uh, you know, when it came to football fans, there's plenty of Indians out there that scream boomer sooner. And, you know, I, I included was one of them. You know, since I wrote my op-ed back in 2015, I've stopped using the term for the most part. I've uh, stopped wearing clothes that wore sooners, that, that has sooners on it. I still support my school, though, and I'm, I'm a proud alumni. I've been faculty there, and I hope to be faculty again soon. And try to do it in a balanced manner, not being totally canceling of the sure. situation. Yeah, I mean, it's a very sensitive topic, isn't it? I mean, if you think about what happened in the land rush of 1889, the lands were opened up. And I, I think it's interesting when you read about it in books, it'll say they were unassigned lands that they opened up to the settlers. But at the same time, they were assigned, actually, they were assigned to Native Americans. And it was the place they had brought all these natives into, in, into Oklahoma territory before it was called Oklahoma. And yet with that land rush, all of these settlers were able to claim land that rightfully actually belonged to natives, even after, you know, even then some of the natives, the Plains tribes were already there, the Comanche and the Apache and Kiowa and all that. But, you know, they had moved all these other tribes into the area too, to try to figure out what to do with the so-called Indian problem. And now they're giving that land away as well to the settlers. And I'm with you. I, I think all the parts of the history of all of that is is interesting. It's fascinating, but it's it's also very sad. And I'm also a big OU fan, and and I I love the college. You know, it's a beautiful campus here, and but I'm I'm glad that these things are being acknowledged. So it's really fascinating what you've been able to do with your Native American studies. You know, you're helping to aid film producers in their attempt to portray Native Americans as accurately as possible. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I co-own Indian Image, NDN Image. You know, we aim to help filmmakers and writers represent Native Americans appropriately. There was one instance where uh, on the set, and there's a question going around about uh, a cultural question: How do Comanche women ride horses? The question was: Did they ride them like guys, or did they ride them, you know, on the side? I threw quick communication with my auntie and every everyone that I could try to resource out to came up with the fact that, no, that women, the Comanche women did ride horse exactly like a man, man and uh, went ahead with that film shoot like that. 
And so that was a, you know, a situation where I'm able to bring in, you know, cultural advising to the situation and it let it play out to help out the film situation to add a little bit more accuracy when it's needed. Yeah, that's really interesting. And by the way, I love the Comanche. I love that they're, uh, you know, they were definitely horse people. And so the women, it wasn't exclusive to just the men being good riders, the women and men riding in the same way. They were incredible riders. And you even ended up on a show yourself as an actor, right? Yeah, yeah. By chance, my aunt was a consultant on the AMC show, The Sun. Uh, this was this was a, a story about a rancher that was a, who became an oil man at 13. He was kidnapped by Comanches. It caused him to become, uh, you know, a little tougher, look at life a little, uh, a little differently. And so it gave him a different perspective. He applied those, I guess, what he saw as a way of living and a way of uh, conducting yourself. He applied that to his oil ventures in the show. There's a whole story around uh, people threatening his empire and so on. I played the Comanche elder, and uh, there's you know several scenes uh, that I I played in several episodes. Uh, about six of the ten episodes that I played in, I end up uh, singing a Comanche song. Uh, it didn't get used, but well, it's uh, got to get used today. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I end up using the Comanche song there, but uh, it became sad qualified. So that well, I was stoked about that. I got a cool. bump in pay, you know, and Hello. Just, it was it was it was a pretty cool experience, but. You know, I looked at that as a, a situation to be able to give me a little perspective into the filmmaking process from behind the behind the scenes, behind the camera aspects, as well as in front of the camera, uh, being an actor, being a consultant at the same time as being an actor on the set was eye opening and an experience that I was able to apply to my own academic studies, too. I had been writing about the academic and the theory of filmmaking and how films represent Native Americans, the aspects that are involved with filmmaking that maybe uh, focus in on, on certain details and just the different aspects of making film that, you know, accentuate things and how those techniques are used to influence the, the viewer. And so writing about that theoretically, as well as talking about how rep Native Americans have been represented throughout pop culture, I was able to kind of get an a inside view on, on the industry. That's great. That whole whole view of all of it, so that you're you're really more dangerous when you do have all those perspectives. So, and then you mentioned that when you and I were talking earlier about Philip Meyer was the writer for the Sun and talked about how he gave this great perspective on what it was like to be a Comanche male. And and what did you mean by that when you talked about the Comanche male? Well, uh, I guess there's a lot of laughing, a lot of jokes going on. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's lot, how I've always remembered yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, a lot, a lot of teasing, a lot of laughing, you know, uh, uh, moments that might make you embarrassed a little bit, but at the same time, <laughs> their, their camaraderie, is, you know, there's camaraderie between brothers. And Philip Meyer in particular, when he wrote The Sun, like I said, I, uh, the aspects of when he looked at Comanche life or male, uh, Comanche males' interactions, to me, they were they were pretty good. Uh, guys could be crass sometimes, so I mean, it, <laughs> no it, 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 yeah, I didn't stray away from that, you know. But and I think that was the kind of a, the interesting aspect, you know. Sometimes it's there's certain details that that you include and that are important, and I think a, having comedy amongst individuals is important uh, yeah. to show that you know these individuals were laughing, these tribal members were laughing, having fun. That's an aspect that's not usually shown on film. I agree. And I, you know, I grew up around, as I mentioned before, even though I'm Choctaw, I grew up mostly around Comanche, Apache, Kiowa, Arapaho. I remember a lot of laughter. There was a lot of cutting up and a lot of teasing and really even tribe to tribe, you know, like, yeah, definitely. <laughs> calling, I won't even say some of this stuff. It's so funny, <laughs> but you know, I'll, I'll leave that to the pros. But I think that's a side of the Native American culture that doesn't get looked at a lot. You know, there's terrible atrocities that happen. There still are some bad things happening, but there's a lot of joy and there's a lot of laughter too. So I don't want that to be forgotten. And you mentioned something the other day, sorry to call you out, but you were talking about how sometimes if someone's about to leave the house for something, what, yeah. what is it that you'll well, say? Yeah. I, I, yeah, I was telling you a little bit, a little, little story about my teenage years living in Apache with a, 
in an all-male house. <laughs> uh, my, my parents had separated at that point in time, so I went to go live with my dad in Apache, and we were with my uncle and all his boys, and it was just nothing but guys in the house all the time. So it was just a lot of, uh, a lot of teasing around and everything like that. But in particular, when I was telling you that story about when anytime anybody would be walk, getting ready to walk out the door, everyone else would give them, give them heck. And say, hey, where are you going? You're just trying to sneak out of here. And most most often they were. One of the guys, whoever it was, was, they were going out to meet a girl or whatever it was to go party. But uh, they'd always just use that excuse of, yeah, I'm going to Texas to get horses. And it, it was just the it was it was the running running phrase running joke. You know, it's like none of your business, basically. <laughs> well, it's even funnier because I I don't know if the background story of that is also like. The Comanche did a lot of raids and stole a bunch of horses, so I assume that that's where that comes from, right? I, I, yeah, I, I assumed there was a play on that. <laughs> right, uh, especially down in New Mexico, even. They, going down to Mexico, getting get horses. Get some horses, that's right. <laughs> well, well, the joke was, is that some of the, the running joke was that when we took the horses, their women would follow us. Oh, so it was, it okay, was, there it, you it go. was also a, a play on that as well. You know, That's play on, awesome. Because a lot of times, like I said, that they, they were going out for a date or something like that. And they didn't want to tell nobody. They didn't want nobody to get all pumped up for them or something like that. <laughs> right. Don't be teasing me, man. Teasing going, a... going to get some horses. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Okay. Well, you know, you've done a lot of cool stuff in a, in a lot of different areas and, and all of that pertaining to the education that you've given yourself, you know, going to OU and learning more about, you already lived your culture and your traditions, but now you've learned more about the history and all those things. So not bad for a guy from Apache, Oklahoma. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so I have to stop though to cover an extremely important topic since we're talking about Apache. Yes, indeed. Rattlesnakes. Oh yeah. You, you perked up when I said that. So <laughs> now again, you're from Apache, Oklahoma, which it was about 15 minutes away from my original home. Where I grew up out in the countryside out in um, Anadarko, Oklahoma. So, yeah, you're from Apache. And how, how big is the town? Yes, yes. It's a real small town, uh, about 1,400 people. But there's always the issue with uh, snakes. and Got a uh, lot of snakes, yeah, huh? Got a lot of snakes around. Uh, <laughs> summer times, so heat starts heating up. Yeah, It's a uh, time to... Stay indoors or not go out there in the in the sticks, but that's right. Watch uh, where you're stepping. But contrary to that, I mean, it, you uh, you yourself was telling me that you actually went out there. And oh yeah, did a little bit. Of... I, I love me some rattlesnake festival. <laughs> it's so awesome. So you know, Apache is near and dear to my heart, and as my family and I used to attend the rattlesnake festival every year, that's in Apache. So for my listeners, if you haven't heard of the rattlesnake festival, it's in the spring every year in Apache, Oklahoma. And it's a chance for folks to catch and gather rattlers in the area. You know, they're trying to control what can be a very large population of the suckers. So got to keep keep it safe out there. So there's a lot of farmers that will open up their land to go out there and, and help uh, wrangle in the rattlers. So you can just come to the festival and learn about and see hundreds of rattlesnakes or you can hunt. So my sister, husband and cousins and I did the we did the hunt not too long ago. And my husband, this was a first time for him. So it was especially he was really glad that I dragged him into that adventure, as you can imagine. <laughs> I bet he was. Oh, poor thing. And, you know, he was so brave. I designated him as the bucket holder. So he'd open the lid of the bucket and I'd stick the rattler in there. Now you tell me, which is the scarier job, Rance? The, the catching the snake or the holding the bucket? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I have more control with the catching the snake. Right. Holding the bucket, you might just toss it on me. <laughs> It was a good lesson in our marriage, you know. How much do we trust each other? So, <laughs> exactly. And honestly, for me, I was like, how much do I trust myself? Because those, you know, some of them can be very heavy. They're, they're all muscle, and they just move around with that muscle. And so you have these, you know, snake handler clips, you know, like on these big holes, and you just you know, grab hold of the snake with the pole and uh, with a clip at the end. And, and you just have to, you know, really stay in charge of that thing. You can't let it get the best of you. So anyway, so tell me, do you attend the festival or do you also hunt? I mean, no judgment either way. Just thought Oh I'd yeah. Uh, no, you're, you're, when it comes to those things, I guess you you might be able to got one on, on me because uh, <laughs> I, I don't usually go out there and hunt, hunt the snakes, but I am thankful for all the people that do and all the snakes that get gathered up because, uh, with as many snakes as we see at the festival in the snake pit, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, I couldn't imagine that many other snakes oh. just roaming around out there. Yeah. And the totally. tr troubles they could cause. 
Absolutely. Well, I mean, you mentioned, you know, that you don't, you don't do the, the hunt. And I really honestly think maybe that means you're smarter than me. The Comanches, uh, we have a, a protocol with involving snakes. If you're going to, a lot of times we're, you know, I'm so used to when the snake would come around the house down there in Apache that my grandpa or my uncles, the, they would catch a snake. Of course, it's, you know, it's around our home, so mm -hmm. we don't want it there coming around. Yeah. You know, catch and release kind of a situation. We would, okay. we would uh, go all in. Just, yeah, you know, they chopped the head of it off and burn it. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that was kind of like it was expected of us. That was how we had to treat it. Right. Um, That's the reality, folks. I mean, when yeah. you've got a snake that can kill your kids and your relatives, you know, sometimes that's the, the personal choice that you have to make. Yeah, so if I would have went out there, I would have had you would have had me burn a bunch of snakes and that would have been we need we need them for the festival and, and the, the scaring the kids and everything. That's right. Oh yeah, and I guess you like to eat them too, huh? Yeah, you know, they I would say they taste like chicken, but to me they taste a little more it, of course it depends on how you prepare them, but to me they taste a little bit like a rubbery catfish and I I really like them. Okay. Pretty good. Pretty all good. Right, right. <laughs> People can, you know, make belts out of the skins and things like that too. So I think it is important to note that as as sad as it is that they some of them are being killed and not all of them are caught and released that we are using every part of the snake. They're eating the snake, they're using the skins and things like that. So I hope uh, people don't come at us for this, but I really do think that there is a reason for this. Oh, and yeah. if, if you wanna go live in Apache, Oklahoma amongst all the snakes, you're welcome to, but we need to make sure that there's population control. It serves a purpose, it definitely does serve That's a purpose. Right. Uh, yeah. I myself, you know, after all these years, I've never tried to eat any of the, the Oh, snakes. you haven't, haven't, yeah. You've just gone to the snake pit yeah. to look at them. I've gone to the snake pit a couple of times. Huh? Maybe once. <laughs> so, yeah. So the snake pit that we're talking about is this big round, I don't know how you'd say it. It's a pit. So it's a place that they throw all the rattlers um, after they've been caught. And there are hundreds of them. And then they're slithering all over each other. And some people, like last time I was there, there was this man who kept putting his hand into the pit and tapping on the side and getting them to kind of slither up the side so he could see them a little bit better. Mm. And of course there's plexiglass all the way around too. So you can see them from every angle and he wasn't trying to intimidate them. He was just trying to get them to move and he's a snake handler. So he, he knew what he was doing. Experts will get in the pit and yeah. they'll like move the snakes around so you can see them a little better. And they're beautiful. They're absolutely beautiful. I was with my cousin Denise yesterday and she just went on a hunt. She does like three different snake hunts every year or whatever. And she caught one recently that was this beautiful, like a chocolate brown color. I mean, you know, usually they're a light brown. It was a dark chocolate brown with some wow. yellow print. Gorgeous. So yeah. anyway, we see them as a beautiful, necessary thing in our environment, but also something that we need to, to control. So again, a lot of times they're caught alive and, you know, obviously we relocate them to white men's houses. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in case you listeners would like to visit this spectacular reptile festival, it's just 75 miles southwest of Oklahoma City. Or in Okie speak, you leave the city, turn right at the Red Barn, and don't forget to wear your snake bite proof boots. <laughs> okay, now that our listeners know a bit about Apache and its rattlesnakes, let's delve into Apache, Oklahoma itself. So First off, tell us about your last name, because that's important to the town of Apache, too, the Wariaqui name and about how your family has a, a long history there in Apache. Yeah, yeah. My family has a good history there in, in Apache. Uh, my last name is uh, Wariaqui. Comanche, uh, I guess, kind of pronounce it Wariaqui. But uh, yeah, the, it has a meaning. Uh, it's not a direct translation, but it means the motion of a man as he's riding on the horse. So I know it's kind of long drawn out, but um, it's a, the concepts were usually all packed into one word a lot of times hmm. in native languages. They, yeah. The language it could open the door to so many things just one by one word. Wariakwe is the motion of a man as he's riding on a horse. Comanches were horse people. Um, once we received the horse through whatever means, I, I you know the story goes is that there was horses released that got out around the late 1600s and Comanches were able to take the animal and become pretty skilled at it. They became, you know, warrior, amazing warriors and uh, really found the ability to command, to command these horses. They, they had a good husbandry of these horses. They, they had a, you know, their own breed of horses too. Their own, uh, a lot of tri there's a lot of tribes that are attributed to having their own breeds of horses. 
I think, unfortunately, a lot of those horses were lost uh, in some of the battles that were occurred in the late 1800s. But yeah, uh, the, you know, the horse, we've got the horse, you know, that's the Comanches are really, uh, our history is tied to the, to the horse uh, and horse culture. Honestly, I, I look at your stereotypical image of a Native American that might be seen around the world with the headdresses and the teepees and the horses, bow and arrows, buckskin. Those are things I like to attribute to, you know, Comanches. It's true. But, you know, That's I, true. I see a lot of, you know, Comanches being the, the prototypical Plains culture. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because we, I think a lot of people don't know that not all natives lived in teepees. In fact, there's a huge range of housing. You know, obviously the teepee worked well for the natives because they were nomadic. Some of them were nomadic. So the ones that lived in teepees were typically nomadic, right? Yep. Yeah, so, uh, you know, yeah, it was easy access. Uh, the teepees, like you mentioned, were the, the dwell, the, the house that we chose. In Comanche, we call it Kani, and it just means it refers to a house. Today, we would just refer to our house as a Kani, but yeah. uh, it was just a housing structure. But, uh, you know, that was a woman's domain, too. Women were the ones that put up teepees. Yeah. Nowadays, you find it's just, it's that's just guys. That's a lot of hard yeah. work, man. Whoa. <laughs> women were doing a lot of hard work, and that's, that's the thing is women were doing, a, you know, when it comes to toughness and just being strong and, you know, willing yourself to do things, these Comanche women were tough, man. Wow. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, like I said, they owned pretty much everything of just domesticity. Comanche women owned their teepees. They own, made and owned pretty much most of the stuff that was in the teepee. A lot of the clothing was made by women. Food was a lot of times prepared by women. And so yeah, there's all these facets that, you know, when, when we talk about Comanche life, and we, we always hold up that, that image of these warriors or something like that. And that was good. But if you look at the other end, you know, there was a lot of work being done by these Comanche women, you know. so Way uh, to pay tribute to the ladies. I yeah, like that. Yeah, definitely. But those horses were, were a big part of our culture. If by the age of like 13 or 12, you were you were already riding a horse and you had your own horse, probably even younger than that, maybe even eight, you know, you were, as soon as you could ride a horse, you were, you were able to get up there and you were expected to get up there and ride that horse. The horses were also used a form of economy. They were a form of, uh, of capital. So uh, Comanches uh, also traded horses and, and used horses as a, a way to trade and means to get resources, other resources. Uh, but yeah, uh, my land down there in Apache, my Comanche land uh, is down there, down there in Apache. As you, as you know, government allotted these little plots of land to natives uh, that were going to be, you know, compensation for land that was taken. You know, I went down there and lived on my land down there in Apache uh, for several years and got, you know, know my folks down there and know my, all my family. Always certain histories that you know, seem to like always get lost, but you know I've I've been you know doing research on past family members and uh, you know through roles and other documents just to get a little perspective on you know what what was on going on in their lives uh, just through any kind of documentation I could find. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things you can draw from it. Uh, you know I, I got to see that you know my great great grandfather was was married uh, and like on this role he'd be you know Comanches practice polygamy prior to colonization. I think it was a response to having the horse culture, having to uh, deal with encroachment. So at a certain point in time, Comanches uh, practiced polygamy and would have a, a couple wives, several wives. My great grandfather grandfather also had uh, a couple wives, I think just two. But when they were split, when they were fr- starting to fracture up the reservation into allotments, that's when they also made them stop polygamy the government came mm, in and said okay. y'all can't practice polygamy anymore yeah and so uh what would happen is a uh, one of the wives uh, would get her own allotment this played you know played into you know the economy house structure you know home home structure societal structure mm-hmm. and so it had an influence on that time of reservation you could you could see that you know this was kind of you could kind of start seeing this as kind of splitting up households so when the wives would get their allotment they were able to find a different status almost. Mm, interesting. They were, you know, they started having their own uh, uh, means of uh, economy or being included in that economy. 
And so, yeah, it, it definitely changed a lot of the structure of families back then. And, and you can look at it as maybe being a disruption, like cultural genocide for Comanche culture. But then you can also look at it from another perspective of seeing how Comanche women were being empowered economically. It's an interesting way to look at it. You're right. I mean, it's it gave them a little bit of power over their lives a little bit, huh? I think it changed forms. I mean, I, I'll just, you know, that's how I see it. Is it yeah. The, the power changed forms. Uh, when I talked earlier about how women would be in control of everything within the domestic circle, that's a lot of power, too. Somebody providing food, or somebody giving food to you and cooking that food and preparing it and then doing that getting you know providing your clothes for Good you point. that's a lot of power and things the things we don't think about is an important part of the everyday life and the yeah, yeah. It, it was a different form of empowerment for women mm-hmm. but speaking of women uh i come from some strong comanche women in particular uh one of my uh great grandmothers was known as a, uh, a medicine woman she was a healer traditional healer uh, her name was maseki and uh, that's they, just what they refer to her as, uh, Old Lady Maseki or Maseki. Comanches just had, usually just had one name. From then on, they would carry the surnames. Or What's interesting, too, is that her name got carried on as well. A lot of times it's just uh, patrilineal, yeah. whereas the father's name gets passed down, mm-hmm. uh, such as Wariakwi. That's coming from my patrilineal line. But in this situation, there's I have relatives that are Masekis. That's how important she was that's how, in that, the community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. She was that important. She had some status. She had some status. She was a, she had a lot of status. Uh, she was definitely a force to be reckoned with. She was a convert to Comanche Methodism fairly early on. Hmm. You know, it, it's interesting to look at her life as being a traditional healer, but also being somebody that accepted Christianity. Mm-hmm. And this plays into a lot into my own worldview and how I see life. As being able to say, you know, I, I, I don't have to split hairs. I can keep, you know, my traditional ways and still consider myself a man of Jesus. Mm-hmm. But I know there are individuals out there that can see some conflict with that. But, you know, for me, I don't see it as, as being exclusive to one, one another. But uh, back to my uh, great grandmother, uh, Maseki, uh, she donated land to a church that was later on named after her. So that, cool. now there's a church down there at Apache called... It's a United Methodist Church. It's a Maseki United Methodist Church. Wow, that's awesome. Next time I'm in Apache, I'll be sure to look for it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's on the way going out of Apache on that bend going toward Lawton. There's, okay, on the main road yeah. out there? Okay. Mm-hmm. And so you probably do consider, I mean, you guys have such a long history out there in Apache, and so I would assume you really have a, a connection to that land. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, Kind of like you mentioned earlier in my thesis, I, I look at Comanches as kind of being here for a while. We didn't, you know, there were a lot of tribes that were removed here. And in all actuality and technicalities, uh, my Comanche band was removed from where we were at in Texas to here. Mm-hmm. But we were nomadic, like I said. So we, we, we came up here like in the summertime or, in, you know, when, whenever the season was right, we yeah. would be in this territory. So I've always seen it as, you know, this is, I've had a con- long connection to this land, being that, you know, we've traveled over this for, for centuries, you know, being Comanche and how Comanches intermarried uh, with other tribes, you know, I could be, my ancestors could be part Wichita or Caddo or something like that, you know, that I, just having lived on this land for even longer. Right. So yeah, I, right. I, definitely, gotta, I definitely feel a connection to this land. It really hits me when you say that, because again, the Plains tribes, the people that were already here for centuries or again, roaming around as nomads and, and going back and forth between kind of a belt of a few states through here. I don't have that same, I have a connection to Oklahoma itself because, you know, we've been here since the, probably the 1830s, but that's about far, as far back as it goes from, you know, before then it's Mississippi, uh, which is where my ancestors came from when they were removed from Mississippi to on the Trail of Tears to Indian Territory, now Oklahoma. Really, I don't have, uh, as much as I'm connected to Oklahoma itself, our land really goes somewhere else, <laughs> So, as far as my ancestors go. So very interesting thought there about how this truly is your land. Have you been to Mississippi? I have, right. but I haven't done a lot of, I've done a lot more research here in Oklahoma on my ancestors than I have in Mississippi. 
I need to go back to Mississippi and check out my ancestry down there too. Yeah. Uh, being part Choctaw, you know, right? that's, that's where my folks are from too. So right? we're related somehow, way down the line, right? Again, most of our relatives that for the Choctaw, they came from Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas area, but primarily Mississippi. And so um, once the Choctaw came over to Indian Territory, they were allotted a really nice big piece of land. Um, they worked really hard with the government to ensure that their tribe was, was taken care of. Where the Comanche, on the other hand, you had two options. You could either fight or you could, in a way, give in, surrender, and then try to work with the government to get what you could for your tribe. And I understand both sides. They were both both very important decisions to make. And I'd hate to be a chief making those decisions. But the Comanche, they fought, right? Yeah, yeah. For the most part, uh, uh, as I mentioned, my, my particular band of Comanches were uh, one of the ones that actually went into a reservation back in 1858. Okay. Uh, down there uh, near San Antonio, Texas. My Penateco band of Comanches were pretty much on the cusp of encroachment. Okay, and yeah. And so they, I think they saw so early on that it wasn't going to be a situation that was going to be conducive to being able to continue on a lot of the old things that we, that we were doing. Yeah. It's a, it's a sad thought, you know, it's like, do we give up our freedom? And, and so it sounds like some a lot of the Comanches were... At some point, for lack of a better term, giving giving in and going, okay, we've got to make the best decision for our people to make sure they stay alive and aren't killed uh, in these battles. But then there were some Comanches that really did fight, and Quanah Parker was one of those instrumental in coming, bringing everybody together, saying, "Look, we've got to go ahead and surrender." And then at that point, a lot of them uh, were taken into Fort Sill, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could liken the situation to a concentration camp situation where Sad. yeah ceremonies etc were kind of looked down on already at that point in time so a lot of that stuff started going by the wayside that's where you see a lot of uh disruption of culture going going on wow. and but, the kiowa and apache were also at fort sill right so i wonder <laughs> how that worked with all three of those tribes being put in one fort yeah, it's kind of like a though in lions and tigers together but uh yeah the you know historic kca uh, reservation included uh, those three tribes that were uh, banded under one government and uh, given that jurisdiction of those that reservation. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, and so, south of Apache was a large Comanche community, and I hear they descended both from the Comanche leader, Quanta Parker, as I mentioned earlier, and then Sem also descended from Ten Bears, who was one of the original signers of the Medicine Lodge Peace Treaty. So, uh, when you and I were talking the other day, you said you were originally from the Kiowa Comanche Apache or the KCA, as you mentioned, reservation, to which I responded, I thought Oklahoma was all trust land and we only have one reservation in the state. And I believe that's Osage. But, you know, as you're leaving, I'm a, you know, my sister lives in Chickasha. As you leave Chickasha and head into Anadarko area, or actually, I think Verdon, and then onto Anadarko, it says Kiowa Comanche Apache Reservation. And I've always been confused by that because, again, was always told this is all trust land. So tell the listeners what you said to me and help me and the others out there understand that. Yeah, uh, you know, when I was referring to as I, I living on the Kiowa Comanche Apache Reservation, and I refer to it as a reservation because of the uh, current going-ons legally here in the state. Uh, actually, for, these are federal uh, decisions that were made by the Supreme Court in particular, the case of McGirt. Here is a situation where uh, an individual, a tribal member, was asking to be tried federally as opposed to uh, by the state, citing that he was a tribal member and tribal tribal nations are sovereign and separate from the state government. And as a tribal member of this sovereign nation, that they had that the state didn't have jurisdiction to try him or try. A lot of these cases that mm-hmm. that, were, that were gone that, that have in the past have already been settled and are still being settled. But uh, in this situation here, uh, this latest court ruling of McGirt, uh, it actually reversed some decisions of saying that a lot of these this jurisdiction on the eastern side of Oklahoma, in particular the Cherokee Nation, Creek Nation, Seminole, Choctaw, and Chickasaw. Uh, are all under reservations that were never dissolved by Congress. It is explained that in order to dissolve a a reservation, it must be an act of Congress. 
that was never done. And so, so they went back and said, okay, well, the reservation is still the reservation. And I feel, and I know that this is probably certain, this is the same similar situation with previously reservation lands in Oklahoma, that those are probably under the same situation that they'll probably be looked at as that they were never dissolved. And so therefore they still stand wow. legally. So interesting. And, and in a time where natives have experienced so much loss, this is a, you know, this is big, big news in our community. And it'll be interesting yes. to see how it plays out. A panel, I think today oh, wow. about it uh, in Oklahoma City, that's going to try to explain a little bit. Some of the family members of victims of the of certain crimes that, that have been already tried, et cetera, just trying to explain to them that these things are they're still going to get justice. Yeah. It just has to go through these certain avenues now. And uh, yeah, but it, it's it, it's confusing. It's it, it's a uh, I think there's a lot of uh, misinformation and other things out there. Say, for instance, when it comes to jurisdiction and police backup, or you know, if you're getting uh, you need help for uh, by a city or a county uh, police officer, tribes have already been working jurisdictional issues with them already. Like you said, in trust land, there's the same issue with trust land. Hmm. You know, that's federal land as well, and uh, so. There's been cross deputization that's already been going on, and it doesn't really. This situation doesn't seem like that's gonna. It's really gonna affect that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, stay tuned. There's a whole lot yeah, more yeah. to be seen, and and it, I'm hoping this opens a, an interesting can of worms. So, yeah. so I had to go back to research more about the three million acre Kiowa Comanche Apache Reservation, which entailed each Indian receiving 160 acres, which was a typical amount in the land allotments. And this reservation was opened up in 1901 for land settlers to take land from the Indians once again. <laughs> so as we were talking about, it happened a couple of times, right? Oh, so you're just a savage and we're going to push you onto land where we want you to live. And oh, just kidding. We won't even let you have that land. So here come the Sooners rushing to claim the land belonging to the Comanche and other tribes. And missionaries reported that the homesteaders brought in drunkenness, stole the natives' livestock and increased crime and disease. In addition, the natives began to starve because the government removed their rations. So the natives had to figure out how to try to utilize cash by leasing their lands to non-Indians. Although the Kiowa Comanche Apache Reservation is no longer quite a thing, as we were just talking about, it is, but it isn't. It's a representation of yet another example of much of the injustice that dominated the world of the native. You mentioned that Masetki was both medicine woman and Christian. The religion or spirituality of the Native American communities was influenced by these coloners. And to this day, many tribes still practice a Christian faith and, you know, as a result of that. And their entire families are highly involved in the local church. And I've always loved my tribe's hymns that are sung in Choctaw. So I would definitely love to hear a hymn in Comanche. And listeners, I had to twist Rance's arm pretty tight to get him to say yes to singing today, but he has agreed to do so. And thanks, Rance, so much for doing this. So I'll, I'll leave it to you. Yeah, okay. You might hear a Comanche hymn, and you might recognize the tune because it goes to a traditional older mm-hmm. uh, church song. A lot of them, uh, to me, sound a little, uh, a little solemn. Mm-hmm. A little uh, slow and low. This one in particular that I chose is a little bit more upbeat. And so that's why kind of why I chose that. I wanted to kind of Love up, upbeat of a yeah. tempo thing. Uh, this was a Comanche hymn. It's called Comanche Hymn Number 48. It doesn't have a title, but it, it was composed by uh, Otobi. Uh, I have no relation to Otobi, but I just really like this song. It's resonated with me. Uh, there are songs that, you know, have come to know been known as family songs mm-hmm. like songs that you know my grandpa would like or just oh, wow. his favorite song yeah but uh this, like i said this one's a little bit more upbeat so i chose to sing this one all right thank all right. you tomo vatita matabi toi matabi Matabi ka vetu tanata nada miya ni pana aitoyana. Okitana tomo vatita hapa ni pana aitoyana. Matabi toi kikuna na matabi miya ni kunan. Matabi ka vetu tanata nada miya ni pana aitoyana. O kitana tomo vatita apa ni pana aitoyana. 
Matabi toi kikunan, matabi meidän ikunan, matabi eikä vetu tanotaan, adami ja niipana aituina. Hukitana tomu vaatitaapa niipana aituina. Matabi toi kikunan, matabi meidän ikunan, matabi eikä vetu tanotaan, adami ja niipana. And the translation to this song is uh, Up in heaven, we're going to praise our Father. As the sun comes up, as the sun travels, as the sun goes down, we're going to praise our Father. And it's just uh, that repeated uh, four times. And a lot of times it's uh, when it comes to tribal songs, the structure is usually four verses or four. Mm-hmm roads when it comes to certain songs it's beautiful and like you said you can just hear the upbeatness and when i hear the translation it makes a lot of sense that was so good thank you thank you yeah thank you helpful i'll get to hear more from you anytime yeah yeah just call me sing me a song put me in a good mood that was that was great there you go yeah thank you and I'm sure Masetki would have loved to have heard this too. Did you get to meet her, or was she already passed by the time you were born? No, yeah, she's uh she's uh, was long past uh, before I was around. But uh, you know, just uh, her little bit of you know her stories about who she was. Uh, you know, what sticks out to me is that you know she was real respected, yeah. respected by yeah. all, you know, men, women, afforded that kind of status as well. I think it's evident. And the fact that her name is being used as a surname, you know, that, yeah. that's, that speaks to something. Big. You know? Yeah. Do you think that we would have heard, you know, if we go to that church in Apache, that's one of the songs that we would hear? Or does anyone sing those songs in Comanche at that church? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that definitely. It's, it's, it's a big thing to sing Comanche hymns there. Uh, they definitely are going to sing, you know, any Sunday, any given Sunday, they're going to get your ear full of Comanche hymns. That's great. Get your... It's uh, uplifting. Yeah, it, yeah. It, you go in there sometimes, you hear those songs, and it just feels... It's and what's the name of the church again? Uh, Maseki. Maseki. Yeah, Maseki. Okay, church. so it's just Maseki. So I, 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 yeah, I have to look it up to see the actual name, but yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, I looked it up too. I was so curious, because when I go through there again, I'll definitely, you know, maybe I can hit a church service. But I do ask that if anyone does join into one of those services one day, that please be respectful of this is a place of worship, and not a place of just going in and observing. So please worship with the um, other folks that are in the church if you do decide to go. But I believe, I assume all are welcome, right, Rance? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's a a Christian church and definitely welcome to come and praise. It's great. So you mentioned the conflicting views of Christianity amongst the tribes sometimes. The Christian faith is strong in the Comanche community. Although, you know, again, we do respect the fact that some people, you know, feel otherwise and, and they believe that that was a, the Christian faith was a part of colonization. In Comanche communities, uh, these hymns are a big part of our culture, have become a big part of our culture. And uh, Christianity has been, you know, been become a big part of our culture as well. It's kind of got grafted into our culture. Yeah. When speaking about, you know, the Maseki church, you know, that my auntie Maxine reacted, she tells me that's, that's my heritage, you know, mm-hmm. and I can't deny that, you know, that's, that's something that was before I was here, something that somebody wise enough as Maseki to be able to discern for herself, what was, what was the, the good path to go. And, you know, being a, a, a Christian herself or, you know, having this church named after her at least, for me, it, it's there's not so much of a conflict uh, personally, you know. Mm-hmm. Like you said, this is a personal thing, but I know a lot of Comanches, and I, I'll go so far as to say a majority of Comanches do have kind of these similar points of views of seeing how uh, our churches are big focus, a part of our community. I also have a part of uh, the, my Tabiaka Native American church, and uh, this is uh, a lot of times people will call this a peyote church but you know at a, at a certain point in time it might have been its own religion but as as comanches we've we've combined the two it's a syncretic religion we go to our native american churches and we, you know in my, my tabiaka we, we pray to jesus and we pray to the medicine and we use those traditional ways but we don't see those traditional ways as being in conflict with our uh, christian ways our, our ways of, uh, of christianity mm-hmm and I've been told this, that we were visited by a figure 
before Europeans came over here. Uh, the story goes is that these Comanches saw this individual riding a donkey, and and they and they they described him as having a halo, a glow <laughs> wow. over his around his head. Yeah, and talked about his even his clothing, you know, being white white clothing. And so there's stories of this figure that some could view it as is this Jesus coming over here. Jesus' life is unaccounted for, and there's points of time in his life where it's not recorded. They talk about him, you know, going about walking around and traveling. But that's one of the things that we have is the story of Comanches is that there is a story about this figure being over here and talking and like being being a certain way, kind of already communicate to us some of the values and yeah. some of the things that were that were going on. So when so when Christianity came to us, it was like almost okay, yeah, we can kind of jive with that story. We can we got some things that kind of right parallel similar yeah, yeah. so similar so Interesting. so yeah so when I, when I look at it that way and I've heard those stories those past stories I, I don't sit it, it sits it sits well with me yeah I, I, yeah. I sit fine with with my uh, absolutely my being able to be a, a, a Comanche tribal member and somebody that follows traditional ways as well as being a, somebody that goes to church mm-hmm for sure. You know, I, I grew up knowing about peyote and its use in the native community. Uh, for instance, just south of my house, there was there's Indian land there and, and there were regular peyote meetings and we hear the drums late into the night. And and most folks have heard of peyote, of course, but share with us what it means in the Native American culture. Well, uh, for uh, us Comanches, uh, my my chapter in particular, it's a sacrament. It's a uh, it's similar to the wine that Jesus would drink or the wine that is given at communion. It, it's a communion, if you will. Uh, it's a communion with God. And so that's what we say this peyote is. It's a, it has properties to it that, that uh, are healing. And we, we utilize those healing properties of it as a, as a herb, as a, as a medicine, but also utilize it as a, a sacrament and as a means to speak or to communicate, to pray. For our prayers to go through that medicine, similar to Jesus, uh, I've likened it to having my relationship with Jesus as being like a telephone to God, being able to use that, use that, that resource or that that situation, that relationship as a means of communication. So that's what peyote is. Uh, it's a cactus that grows down in uh, South Texas, northern Mexico. And we go and harvest it yearly, annually. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use it dried. It's a lot of times it's dried and preserved, so we can use it for throughout the year. But uh, like I said, I, I see it as a sacrament. It's a something that we use uh, just uh, as prayer. And my church, my chapter in particular, is called Tabieka, which is referencing the warrior Tabieka, who, who in our view, brought this peyote back to Comanches. Uh, a lot of times, uh, there's be stories in history books about Comanches and talking about how Quanah Parker brought uh, peyote to Comanches. But there's a, a well-established story amongst our, our people that uh, Tabieka about the story about Tabieka, and with how it goes with Tabieka. His name Tabieka stands for Red Sun, and he was a well-respected uh, warrior. And one time they were on a, a raid into Mexico, and they came across these uh, Apaches in a teepee. In this Apache village, and uh, there was about about five or six warriors, and some of these these warriors were standing off to the, you know in the distance, and they could hear the songs that they were singing, they could hear the drum beating, and it was it was new to them. It was something that they hadn't really heard. Yeah, that Tabieka, they were all curious about this, and but Apaches were our enemies at the time, mm. and so they nobody wanted to go down there and say well, see what was up, except for the. Tabieka, he was the only one. And he he went down there by himself, lone lone warrior, and uh, approached approached those Apaches in that in their teepee. And they told him, those Apaches said they welcomed him in, into their teepee, but they told him he had to leave all his weapons on the outside. All your weapons have to stay out there, and we'll come into this teepee and we'll teach you these songs. We'll, yeah. te- we'll teach you these songs and, and and give you this way because it's yours. They said we sing these songs in your language. In Comanche language, so you know he, he he sat down there and he he took it he listened and he he he, he stayed down there for with them for uh, their duration of their uh, ceremony and learned their ways 
and then brought that back to uh, my Comanche folks. Wow, interesting story, and and that's one that I had never even heard before. And and because peyote is considered a part of religious ceremony um, for Native Americans, it's actually legal. I at least know here in Oklahoma, is it only on the Indian land or only for people who have their CID, CDIP? Or yeah, you like? actually have to be a part of the, of the chapter of the church. So you get like a card. It's, okay. like, it's like a CDIB, but it's a yeah. card telling, saying that you're a part of a chapter. Gotcha. Okay. It's uh, illegal for if you don't have that, supposedly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's very interesting. And I know that I, I've only scratched the surface of what peyote meant for our culture and, and all that. So I appreciate it. Now, is it every tribe that has used, that uses peyote? I don't want to just blanket term that all natives use peyote, or is it certain tribes? Uh, there are, it's expanded out to be an intertribal thing, really. Mainly, uh, it caught on real heavy with Plains tribes, of course. Because of the relation to because Texas relation and where it was. Yeah, yeah, where it was at. Yeah. Uh, and it's, but it's, it's, it's spread out west uh, to Navajos, to uh, Uchis, mm-hmm. out, out east, uh, some of these tribes that we would consider more southeastern. Okay. Yeah, there's certain tribes, Shawnees, that, that have picked it up. Not many of the other tribes like Choctaws or Chickasaws or uh, Cherokees. They have their own their own religions, their own ways that they mm-hmm. that they have that maybe are being being revitalized or, yeah. or that they still could that they still hold. But peyote uh, is kind of a it's it became an intertribal thing. It's even gone up north to some of those tribes up north, the Sioux and so making the rounds. Yeah, making it's made its way out there to some <laughs> other tribes. Absolutely. Okay, thanks for sharing that with us, especially because yeah. I know it's it's a religious ceremonial thing for you, and and I know it's sacred. So appreciate your sharing that. So switching gears a bit, tell us about your good work at the First Americans Museum that's about to open in downtown Oklahoma City. Oh yeah, definitely proud of this project. Definitely for for real. Um, you know, I was very very proud to be a media production assistant for the First American Museum. I basically joined as a curator and a media production assistant. So we worked as a team, collaborating, throwing out suggestions, and. Just hashing things out to, for the basically for the greater good of the show and the public that uh, we want to show accurate depictions uh, of our of the tribes here in Oklahoma. It was cool. It was awesome to be on the ground floor and the planning conceptual phases of that. My fingerprints are all throughout the museum. I'm sure I haven't taken a tour of it yet, but I'm chopping up a bit to do it's that. Exciting. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what all. It's recognizable to me to say, hey. Yeah, I did that. I did that. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah so, yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. You know, uh, my boss, uh, Leslie Halfmoon, we coordinated to with a lot of tribes to sit down with them, talk with them about what stories were going to be presented in the museum. Uh, we wanted to bring a balance of all the tribes. Uh, we got 39 tribes here in Oklahoma, so there was a lot of balancing of representation here, which tribes, you know, might have not been represented to a certain extent, so we kind of want to bump them up to try to give them a little bit of highlight. And we try to keep it all in perspective, though. But um, yeah, we tried to balance those stories out. But there's a lot of good stories to tell of all these Oklahoma tribes. It looks like the museum will be opening up in September of 2021 in Oklahoma City. And I'm going to try to come over for that grand opening and see the results of your hard work. So I tend to see a lot of museums that have a lot of Navajo and Pueblo type depictions and artifacts, which is great. But it'll be good to see finally some more Plains Indians representation and some visuals that most people really have never experienced. So listeners, please keep your eyes open for the First Americans Museum in Oklahoma City. Check it out at famok.org. And if you'd like to support these great efforts to keep our indigenous people's history and stories alive, there is a place to donate on that website. And Rance, why don't you share a little more about Indian Image Company so that people who are needing your services know how to reach you? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, Indian Image is a uh, production company that, you know, as as I explained, we definitely try to deal with uh, screenwriting, working on films, independent any any you know any pretty much anything that has to do with kind of any kind of representation and imagery uh media wise indian image is a consultant to that you know there's uh several projects that we've worked on uh so far one of them being uh, called thistle creek uh, it was directed by uh nyc student named Anna Lee walton in 2020 and uh it's gotten uh you know s- several awards uh, one of them is uh the indie short fest in los angeles International film festival I got a long list of awards here, so I don't know. One of them is the Real Rogers Film Festival in 2020. 
But, you know, there's a, a lot of, uh, we got a lot of, uh, oh, I just researched this this morning too. I found out there's a lot of stuff that I didn't even know. About. Oh wow, that's awesome! <laughs> yeah, this is the, the communication lines of you you're know, winning so much, you yeah, just can't yeah. even keep up with all of it. Yeah, and then I also worked on another uh, independent film called Nowhere, Arkansas, with a director named uh, Robert Lindsley, and that was uh, filmed in October 2019 in Louisiana, and it was actually up for a Louisiana Film Prize. Uh, as well in 2019 it was a and it just has it has a numerous film festival appearances as well the directors from australia so there's several australian film festivals that it's hit up so that was it's, it's pretty kind of cool to get get out there and get international yeah and i can say hey i know you and ironically uh your aunt maxine and i are actually friends you know do we grew up uh in the same church together and, yeah. and she's a family friend of ours so um be sure to say hello to her and i see you have something here what is this Rand? i was going to show you that this is a, a dvd of the, oh, the sun, the sun. Yeah. okay that is awesome i'm excited to look this out i didn't know pierce brosnan is in it huh yeah okay yeah. i got to meet him uh, once wow and uh, i had a law professor of mine that was really wanted to get his signature for his wife's autograph. Yeah. So you had and to I, do I, it. I, I, I mean, never seen him again after that. <laughs> <laughs> I only, seen him, only met him once and after that I never, cut, well, never was on a set at the same time. And of course our listeners are going to want to know. Was he nice? Oh yeah, yeah. He was cool. He was a real cool guy. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, Thanks yeah. for sharing that with me. I'm, yeah. And now that I know that, hey, it's on AMC, it's The Sun, and I remember when it came out and I just, you know, too much going on. I hadn't watched it so now it's on my list for sure. Yeah, you might, might be able to squint your eyes and zoom in you might be able to see me <laughs> i'll be like there he is <laughs> we'll be cheering you on for sure yeah so yeah cookie rants for sharing about all of the interesting work you're doing to try to keep our culture alive will you come with us to the uh rattlesnake festival next year oh uh, yeah definitely i'm looking forward to that i know we've talked about that let's do it that'd be great and you'll do the hunt with us uh uh, jury's still out on that one. We'll see. <laughs> well, I'll let you open the bucket lid for me to put the rattler in. Oh, okay, yeah. It's an honor. You should, yeah. Uh, I'll stand back in the truck and watch y'all. <laughs> well, well, how about eat the snake meat? Will you eat some of that? Uh, like I said, I've never had it up to this point. <laughs> After last year and the crazy year that we had last year, I'm, I might cry it out at this point. <laughs> maybe, maybe. All right. Well, I, at least I got a baby out, yeah. out of you. But at least, you know, if you don't, then you'll have only one choice then. We talked to us, we'll have you running across the prairie, search out the snakes so we can catch them. How's that sound? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, as long as you, uh, as long as you, uh, I can run on my Comanche horse, I'll be fine. <laughs> Deal done. <laughs> Thanks again. Are you looking for a new adventure? Learn to fly at Chickasha Wings. Right here at Chickasha Wings, we teach people to fly. We've got eleven airplanes, nine flight instructors, and about five mechanics. We turn out about 80 new certificates or ratings each year. And we train pilots who now fly at the major airlines. We have, they fly for the Air Force, the FAA, for private jets. They even have a few missionary pilots. Our customers come from all over the United States. Here at Chickasha, we're able to provide lower costs, a more focused training program, and we're able to provide a higher level of customer service. My favorite thing about this business is helping people. Because I see people go from not knowing anything about it to being an airline pilot. Come out here and learn to fly. Your adventure awaits at Chickasha Wings. For more information, check out ChickashaWings.com. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.